the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. I want to start by talking a little bit about impeachment, and I guarantee this will not be uh, another impeachment show. That, that drama is over. It flopped. It lost. And uh, I think we'll touch on it maybe with one or two of our guests, but we're not going to talk about it very much. It's time to, uh, it's time to move on, and it's time for bombs away on the Biden-Harris administration. That's my view. But, but, but before we move on, I do want to spend this segment talking a little bit about the implications of the two utterly bogus impeachment proceedings that the Democrats brought against President Trump or private citizen Trump in the second case. The first one was just was just uh, was just groundless. The congratulatory phone call to the president, newly elected president of Ukraine, <laughs> that was just groundless. The second one was, in my, in my view, groundless, but also unconstitutional. As I think, Article One and Article Two both make it clear that impeachment is a proceeding that is intended to remove a sitting federal office holder, uh, which Trump was not at the time the the uh, Senate convened. And so, in my view, that that proceeding was unconstitutional as well as ill-founded. But nevertheless, here we are. Here we are. And so, the question that I recently posed in a in a post on Powerline is is what Republicans should do going forward, and in particular, should Republicans impeach Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? It seems to me that the Democrats have rewritten the rules of the game and impeachment, which was used almost not at all for the first 150 years or so of the Republic, all of a sudden has become just one more card in the political deck to be played basically at will by whichever party controls the House of Representatives. And and so I think Republicans in Washington have got to be asking themselves, what are we going to do next time we control the House of Representatives, which probably, knock on wood, is going to be quite soon. Uh, currently, the um, the Democrats have a very narrow edge in the House. In fact, it's the smallest majority uh, in, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, something like that. And um, and and if the uh, President Biden's first midterm election goes similarly to almost every first midterm election uh, of a new president since World War II, uh, the Republicans should pick up more than enough seats to take control of the House. And that's before we even talk about redistricting, uh, which will go on between now and 2022, and in most states is being controlled primarily by Republicans. So while obviously things can go awry and anything can happen, uh, there's every reason to expect that as of January 2023, the Republicans may very well be in control of the House of Representatives. 
And if that's the case, impeachment is something that I think is going to be on the table or may at least be on the table. And, and, and one, um, uh, one Republican who got a lot of attention in the, over the last few days talking about this was uh, Lindsey Graham. And Lindsey Graham pointed out that by impeaching uh, Donald Trump over the January 6th uh, disturbance at the, at the Capitol, uh, the Democrats have opened Pandora's box because the fact is, in the year 2020, we had many, many riots that were way worse, way more damaging, way more people injured and killed than what happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And those riots and that, that looting and that arson, that was largely encouraged by Democratic Party office holders, including Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris actually contributed to a fund to uh, bail out of jail people who had been arrested in Minnesota, primarily Minneapolis, for rioting, for arson, and for looting. And she encouraged other people to contribute to that fund. And Senator Graham said, I don't know how Kamala Harris doesn't get impeached if the Republicans take over the House because she actually bailed out rioters. Well, he makes a great point. He makes a great point. The Democrats accused Donald Trump, I think, falsely of inciting that that disturbance on January 6th. But there's no question about what Kamala Harris did. There's no question about the damage that was being done by those rioters. There's a stretch in the city of Minneapolis two miles long that has been burned, utterly destroyed, utterly destroyed. Still, no attempt at rebuilding has been made. And that was encouraged and rewarded by Kamala Harris. Now, one of the things that that Harris and others try to do is to say, well, we were bailing out people who were were arrested for demonstrating and protesting. But of course, that's not true. Nobody got arrested for demonstrating and protesting. Hardly anybody got arrested at all. And to get arrested, you had to be doing something really seriously criminal. And that's what happened. The people who got arrested were people who were caught in the act. They were rioting. uh, They were setting fires. They were burning down buildings. They were committing physical assaults. And those are the people that Kamala Harris uh, contributed to bailing out and and urged others to contribute to bailing out. And Tom Cotton, although he hasn't talked about it specifically in the context of impeachment, is another one who's pointed out that Kamala Harris helped violent rioters in Minnesota to get out of jail and do more damage. And, and if what Donald Trump did was impeachable, well, certainly then that was impeachable. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. And if former presidents can be impeached, then won't the Republicans, if they take the House in 2022 or thereafter, or thereafter, because at some point they'll certainly take the House, won't Republicans at least consider impeaching Barack Obama. Barack Obama conducted himself in important ways in a manner that was completely lawless. When he purported to suspend enforcement of the immigration laws, he violated the principal duty of the president under Article 2 of the Constitution, and he violated his oath of office. Uh, Article 2 says that the president uh, must take, uh, take care to see that the laws are faithfully executed. That's his most basic duty, and, and uh, Barack Obama flouted uh, his uh, refusal to take care that the laws be uh, faithfully executed. 
And that seems to me to be right down the middle of the plate in terms of a violation of constitutional duty that is an appropriate ground for impeachment. And if the Democrats have now set a precedent that a former president can be impeached, I I don't know of any reason why Barack Obama should feel secure against that proceeding being brought against him uh, if the Republicans uh, take the House in 22 or whenever the Republicans take the House. And, of course, Joe Biden, in in one of his first executive orders or a series of orders, in, in the first days of his administration, did essentially the same thing that Barack Obama did. That is, he issued orders uh, basically directing that the immigration laws uh, not be enforced, that uh, illegal uh, immigrants who had been caught sneaking into the country uh, be released. Uh, And Democrats uh, bragged that they had uh, defunded ICE uh, or dismantled ICE without even having to officially dismantle ICE, simply by executive orders which directed the non-enforcement of most, if not all, of the country's immigration laws. Well, here again, Joe Biden, it seems to me, has plainly violated the take care clause of Article 2 of the Constitution. His job as president is to see that the laws are enforced, uh, to see that they are uh, executed. Uh, and and he has, has uh, not only failed to do that, he has repudiated any intention of uh, taking care to see that the laws be faithfully executed. And so it seems to me that that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and even Barack Obama have put themselves well within the zone of impeachment if we are to apply a standard anything like the standard that the Democrats applied in bringing two of those proceedings against Donald Trump. The Democrats have sowed the wind And if the Republicans take the House in 2022, I think there's a good possibility that they may reap the whirlwind. Now, as I said in my post on Powerline, I'm really agnostic on this. It seems to me that that what the Republicans do if and when they take the House will depend on the landscape at that time politically. It's something we can't really foresee. And they may conclude that uh, impeachment proceedings are a waste of time and and bring them no advantage. Um, That's possible. But in the meantime, I don't believe that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris or Barack Obama ought to be sleeping easily uh, when they think about the impeachment precedents that they have set during and after the administration of Donald J. Trump. We're going to run to a break and be back with more after this. It's a beautiful day. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Ilya Shapiro of the uh, Fund for American Studies, and Ilya is a member of the Law Board of Visitors at the uh, Fund for American Studies. Ilya, thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. My day job is actually at the Cato Institute, where I direct our Center for Constitutional Studies. Ah, terrific. Thank you. 
So, Ilya, I thought maybe we'd start by talking a little bit about impeachment. Uh, This uh, proceeding, which in my opinion was pretty farcical, is now fading into history, (laughs) ignominiously, I would say. But before it's entirely gone over the horizon, uh, let's spend just a few minutes talking about it. And I guess the question I would ask you is, has, has the concept of impeachment forever been changed? Uh, has impeachment been turned into a, a purely political tool that is now to be wielded at the sole discretion of whichever party controls the House of Representatives? The thing is, we've had four impeachments in our country's history, and they've all been fairly partisan to a, a fairly large extent, talking about the two with Trump, uh, one uh, with, with Clinton and Andrew Johnson back in, in 1868. The House, given that you only need a bare majority, that can and, and I guess will remain a partisan, almost like a censure moment. And in the Senate, it's very hard to get that two-thirds for, for anything short of uh, naming a post office. It's unclear what kind of precedent we're setting. You know, would this result of the trial that was just resolved this past weekend have turned out to be different if Trump were still in office? Because it seems like most Republicans who voted to acquit, at least to the extent that they explain themselves, stuck to this uh, jurisdictional point that uh, former officers, or at least former presidents, cannot be tried. So I guess going forward, it's going to be seen as partisan, but there might be a wrinkle if the president does something egregious and it's not within weeks of his term ending. Yeah. The other thing that was so strange about this second Trump impeachment is that by the time the Senate took it up, he was out of office. And I don't know if you, what your view on this is, Ilya, but when I read Article 1 and Article 2 of the Constitution, it seems pretty clear to me that impeachment is intended to be a remedy to remove somebody from office. And, and if he's not in office, I, I really don't think that impeachment is a is a proper constitutional remedy. But but do you think the door has now been opened if the Republicans, for example, take the House in 2022 to impeaching Barack Obama? The, the constitutional argument is a close one because the constitutional text uh, does not squarely answer this question. Based on our history and the practice of uh, impeaching former officials, not presidents, but, uh, but other kinds of officials, and the nature of impeachment and that the remedy isn't just removal, but also disqualification from, from future public office. I tend to side with those who argue that former officials, uh, and it's no different from former presidents and other officials, can uh, be impeached in trial. And certainly there's the additional wrinkle with Trump that he was impeached while he was still in office, but it's just the Senate trial that was, that was afterwards. So, I mean, ultimately, impeachment is a political remedy. It's not a criminal law one. It's not a in, in a court of law in, in any case. So, I mean, I suppose uh, you, Congress could vote to impeach uh, Andrew Johnson again uh, right this moment if they really wanted to. Uh, maybe there'd be a debate about whether the person has to be living, not just a, a former official, not just a sitting official. But again, it just, it just depends on the politics. Uh, at, at the end of the day, if a majority of the House feels that it wants to impeach a former official, now, you know, the obvious question is, why didn't they do it 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever the last time they had the majority? You know, if you look at American history, uh, some things are written clearly in the Constitution and so forth. But, but a lot of it is you, you have to presume a certain amount of good faith. And otherwise, the whole republic is just not going to function. And for 150 years or more, uh, it was a given, I think, that that impeachment was a, a rare remedy, a last resort. Uh, as you say, there's always an element of politics, but we've had very, very few impeachments over the course of the country's history. And has and, and that just fundamentally changed? Do you think that that whole idea that that this is kind of a, you know, a higher process is just out the window? 
well, I'd like to see more officials impeached for dereliction of duty and gross negligence and, and things like that. Again, whether president uh, or otherwise, Donald Trump is certainly a, a unique figure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the call to, to the Ukraine president is a, a little different, perhaps, but certainly the, um, the post-election shenanigans are a unique event and a unique actions by the president. So I'm not sure what kind of uh, precedent uh, it, it, it really sets. Um, you know, will, will impeachment forever be uh, uh, denuded of, of its seriousness? I, I don't know. You know, the one president who was forced to resign, Nixon, was, was never uh, impeached because he saw the writing on the wall. So uh, every political era is different. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens next. But uh, um, could you see every president of the opposite party impeached whenever there's a, a majority in the House? I don't know. It depends on their decision of what uh, what passes the spell test to the public. We're talking with Ilya Shapiro of the uh, Cato Institute and the Fund for American Studies. Ilya, I'd like to shift gears now and talk a little bit about the Fund for American Studies Summer Law Fellowship. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, so the Fund for American Studies uh, is has been around for, for decades, I think over 40 years at, at this point, uh, and it's uh, always hosted student programs of various kinds, uh, typically targeted at undergrads, whether economics, journalism, or, or other subjects. And uh, a number of years ago, we started a, uh, a legal uh, studies fellowship program uh, for law students. Uh, I think it's been around, I should know this, but it's seven or eight years. And uh, it, uh, it gives students a, a stipend in the summer. Uh, you, you get an internship. You take classes uh, with leading professors from Georgetown, George Mason, uh, area uh, law schools, typically on originalism, law and economics, uh, these, these heady issues that, um, that you don't typically get in, in a law school uh, education. Um, and there's uh, extracurricular programming, speeches by judges and local uh, national public officials, uh, panels about how to get a clerkship or um, uh, how to think about public interest litigation or the end of the Supreme Court term. I typically do a Supreme Court roundup. So it's a broad program. Uh, I encourage uh, anyone who's, uh, who's looking for a, a summer job, looking for summer uh, enrichment, something worthwhile to do uh, as a law student to apply. Um, deadlines are coming up quick, but I, I do think we, we still have slots. And Ilya, just to clarify a few details, this, uh, the fellowship is located physically in Washington, D.C., is that right? Uh, that's right, although, of course, last summer it, it was all virtual because of the pandemic. Uh, too early to tell what exactly is going on for this summer, but in the normal course, it is uh, physically in, in D.C. And what law students are we talking about? One L's, two L's? Uh, what, what, what's the, what's we, the range? We get a mix. It depends. Uh, uh, since the, the organization of the program changed a couple of years ago where we were able to offer greater scholarships and stipends, uh, more 2L started applying because typically 2Ls have more uh, options available to them uh, in different places. But we, it is open to both 1Ls and, and 2Ls. I suppose you know we we won't necessarily turn back 3Ls, but uh, they're probably looking for permanent employment rather than a summer internship. Right. And if some of our listeners would like to apply, uh, where should they go? PFAS.org. That's PFAS.org, and you can uh, click over to the to the summer legal fellowship. 
Ilya Shapiro, thank you very much for being on the Dan Proft Show. We're now going to go to some uh, commercial messages and be right back. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by John C. Goodman, Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute, President of the Goodman Institute for Public Policy Research, and author of the widely acclaimed A Better Choice, Healthcare Solutions for America, and the award-winning Priceless, Curing the Healthcare Crisis. John, thanks for being on the program. Glad to be with you. I want to start by talking about a piece that you've got in National Review called uh, The Conservative Identity Crisis. And I think I think any time a, a political party or a, or a political movement, uh, you know, loses an election, there's always some introspection and there's always some some thinking about, you know, where do we go from here? Do we need to make changes, uh, et cetera? And so uh, a lot of conservatives are, are 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 thinking about those things these days. And why don't you just lay out for our listeners uh, the, the case that you make here in the conservative identity crisis? Well, I think there's a real division among right-of-center thinkers that uh, we've kind of swept under the rug and people haven't talked about, but I think it's becoming more relevant these days, especially uh, with the results of the last election. And uh, there's a division between people who look to the past and who see conservatism as mainly preserving traditions, uh, history, institutions, and people who uh, want to reform institutions, liberate people, change the world. And it's this latter point of view that I think appeals to the young. And if we want college students and, and young people to become engaged with right of center thinking, we need to be the movement of reform. Yeah. And uh, when we think back on, on when conservatism was really moving forward in America, uh, I think you can say it was forward-looking. I think back to the Reagan era when, when the Democrats were really backward-looking and their theme was uh, young people, get over it. This is the new normal, you know, stagflation, decline. America's never going to be great again. And at that time, conservatives both here and I think in Europe really did have a, a reformist, forward-looking agenda that did appeal very strongly to young people. Yes, that was an exciting time. The last, uh, think of it as the last quarter of the uh, 20th century, uh, led by Margaret Thatcher in England, Ronald Reagan in the United States. But really what was happening all over uh, Eastern Europe is we were smuggling in books by Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand and other people. And and uh, there was a, uh, a rightward movement all over the world. And what were people talking about? For, for the last 25 years of the 20th century, they were talking about the flat tax private Social Security uh, accounts, uh, privatization, deregulation. The left really had nothing to say. The left was intellectually bankrupt. And uh, 
when the left did say things, they talked about our ideas, not their ideas, because they didn't have any ideas. Well, that's kind of true today, isn't it? I mean, I, it's it's not like anybody is looking to the left for uh, intellectual guidance. The left is more the source of uh, totalitarianism, cancel culture, and 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 so forth. Well, that's true. But but as we entered the 21st century, I think the right lost its bearings, and um, and we don't see we seem to be floundering, <laughs> and we don't seem to be putting forward a reform agenda. Uh, with the same enthusiasm, with the same energy that you saw during the Reagan-Thatcher years. Well, let's talk about that. Let's let's get specific. In your article uh, in National Review, you talk about some of the items of the reform agenda that conservatives ought to be pressing. What 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 are some of them? Well, if you think about it, uh, the left talks about the minority community and how. Um, uh, minorities have been marginalized, discriminated against, which is certainly true. Uh, but what do they propose to do about it? Well, they don't have any answer. And uh, the, the truth of the matter is that black families in inner cities all across the country all too often are forced to send their children to the worst schools. They're living in the worst housing. Uh, they're subjected to the worst environmental harms. And the left has no answer to this. Uh, there is a free enterprise answer. Uh, a liberation answer, and on education front, it's school choice. Um, uh, in, in Florida, the governor won, uh, Republican governor won 30% of the black vote just um, by promoting school choice. Um, but but it, there, there are not enough conservative candidates uh, focused on those issues. On housing, um, California's most liberal state in the country has the highest rate of homelessness in the whole country. And that's because they don't allow developers to build housing that uh, ordinary people can afford. So so the, the problems of the minority community are typically problems that are created by government. And to, to make lives better, we have to reform those institutions. Uh, the left uh, created them. They inherited them. Uh, they, uh, they're poor defenders of them. Uh, but on the right, uh, we don't see any, any focused... Uh, attempt to reform these institutions. We are talking with uh, John Goodman. We will be back with uh, more with John Goodman after these messages. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We are talking with uh, John Goodman about his article in National Review titled The Conservative Identity Crisis. And, John, before the break, uh, you were talking about uh, the fact that liberal policies have really completely failed, particularly minority and particularly uh, relatively poor um, people who, who live in deep blue cities. And um, that really should create an opportunity for conservative ideas, shouldn't it? Of course. Now, if you think about the way the Democratic Party campaigns for votes in the minority community, uh, what does it do? It, it engages in race baiting. And we have some high-profile cases of where a, a black teenager was, was abused uh, by the police, for example. And, and that's their campaign. Uh, that we live in a racist society and you should vote for us because we're not racist. And that's all they have to say. 
uh, they don't have any solution to any real problems. Um, the conservative answer to that should be that, uh, look, uh, black families are trapped in bad schools. They're, they're not allowed to send their children to better schools. And, uh, and that's wrong. And uh, I believe that's an, that's an issue that would resonate in the black community. Uh, uh, all black families, know there's a difference between bad schools and good schools. Uh, it's right. common in the minority community for, uh, for families to uh, 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 lie about where they live so they can send their children to a better school. And, uh, and, and we need to uh, take the position, oh, look, everybody shouldn't have to lie. That should be a right. We should have school choice. You know, you talk about bad schools, John. Uh, just a day or two ago, I, I wrote a piece on my my website, Powerline, about a movement that is afoot in America's public schools to decree that mathematics is racist. And math is racist because of its emphasis on getting the right answer uh, and and also the idea of showing your work. You know, this is, this is white supremacy, uh, according to these liberals who are trying to reform public education so that students are don't don't focus on actually getting the right answer to a math problem or a, or a physics problem. It seems to me, John, that I can't imagine anything that uh, public educators could do that would be more damaging to the academic prospects of children and especially black children, because that's what they're talking about. That's what all this is directed at than telling them not to worry about getting the right answer on a test. Yes, it's dumbing down education, and that doesn't help anybody. Uh, it doesn't also doesn't help anybody in New York City to uh, place minority children in classes with children who score several hundred points better than they do on, on exams. Uh, so, so, again, the left has no solution to any of these problems. Uh, we know that there are charter schools around the country that do remarkably well uh, with black students, and, um, and those are choice schools. Uh, we know there are magnet schools in every major city that, that compete for students uh, with, with other schools. So we know competition works. We know specialization can work. Uh, once, you, once you get out from under the control of the teachers' unions uh, and let teachers teach, uh, uh, students do really well. And yet what we see from the Democrats is an initiative now in the Biden administration to crack down on charter schools. The uh, constituency for Democratic candidates is not children. Children don't vote. Their constituency is the unions. And, uh, you know, you have the same problem with the teachers' unions as you do with police unions in a lot of our large cities. And that is you can't fire the bad apples. In education, you can't fire the bad teachers. And the union sees it as its role to protect the worst teachers. You don't need to protect good teachers. So they're there to protect the bad teachers. And we're seeing this all across the United States. Uh, it's, it's worse in some areas, uh, you know, the deep blue cities than others. But the, but the, uh, the, the role played by the teachers' unions is, uh, is pernicious everywhere we look. You know, another thing you talked about in your uh, National Review piece, John, is uh, occupational licensing. And, and here again, when you look at the occupations that are subjected to just irrational uh, bureaucratic requirements, hair braiding, you know, nails, you know, that kind of thing, it, you know, it's, it's hard not to think that they're just deliberately set up as obstacles to you know, low-income and minority people breaking into some of these lines of work. I don't think they're overtly racist, but they have a racist impact. 
uh, and they affect everybody who's not already in the profession. So the estimate is that uh, almost one in three jobs in the United States requires a government license. It's almost like the return of the medieval, medieval guild system. And uh, they keep making the requirements tougher and tougher to get into the profession, to be a barber, to, to, to style hair, uh, to do almost anything these days. You have to pass exams and get tested. Uh, and often the test has nothing to do with uh, meeting the needs of the, of the customer. So, um, and, and by the way, uh, they always grandfather everybody who's already in the profession. So if you're a hairstylist and they have a new requirement that people have to meet uh, new testing, for example, to become a hairstylist, everybody who's already been licensed is grandfathered. They don't have to do this. So obviously the motive is not to enhance the uh, quality of care for the uh, customer is to keep people out. And that's, that's almost always what occupational licensing is designed to do, keep new entrants out of the market. We're talking with John Goodman. And, John, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that conservatives have an agenda that can and should resonate with, with low-income voters. I think we saw that in the Trump administration, didn't we, in the 2020 election? I think that uh, the administration's policies did resonate with a lot of those voters. Uh, Trump did a, a lot of remarkable things that even Trump seemed to be unaware of. The, the one area of the economy that was most deregulated was health care, uh, and Trump never really talked about it. But as we entered last year, it was illegal for doctors un, under Medicare uh, to talk to their patients by phone, by email, by Skype, by Zoom. But by law of Congress, it was illegal. Well, the Trump administration had been working for three years uh, to uh, – to make that possible. And then when COVID hit, Congress, as an emergency measure, uh, allowed uh, the suspension of that law that was brought about because of the Trump administration. And Trump never talked about it. If he, if he had just yeah. held his cell phone up and said, you yeah. can talk to your doctor by phone now because of me, uh, he would have gotten a lot more senior votes and he might have won. Yeah. John Goodman, thank you so much for being on the Dan Prof Show. we got to run to a break. We'll be back with more after these messages. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, I'm coming to you from Minnesota, where we are in the midst of an epic uh, cold streak, as a lot of the country is. I mean, we have days where the high temperature is two below zero and the low temperature is 20 below zero. Day after day after day, this has been going on for about a week and a half. And I think after about tomorrow, it's supposed to start to moderate and get back to more uh, normal temperatures. But one of the things that's unusual about this cold snap is it's not just places like Minnesota that are freezing cold. It's Texas. It's Louisiana. It's it's big swaths of the South. And there's been a fair amount of publicity about the fact that Texas is now experiencing rolling blackouts. So this is something brand new. 
And the Babylon Bee had a, had a funny piece about how the people that have left California and moved to Texas finally feel at home because they're experiencing electricity blackouts. But but you ask, you know, why is this? And and I wrote about this on, on Powerline. Why are they having electricity blackouts in, in Texas? And the answer is because their grid is so dependent on wind energy and wind turbines don't work when it gets really cold. They ice up, they freeze up. In fact, they suck energy because you have to provide them with electricity uh, to keep to keep the engines warm. And so this is something we see pretty often up north and they're seeing it now uh, in the in the south as well. Wind energy uh, doesn't show up to work when you need it the most. That is under extreme weather conditions. And, and they're seeing that in Texas. They're also having problems with natural gas pipelines. And what they really need in Texas, if they want to be sure they can keep the lights on, keep the electricity flowing, is, uh, is secure, dispatchable sources of power. What does that mean? Well, it means, it means primarily uh, coal and nuclear. And one thing about coal and nuclear is they don't depend on the weather like wind and solar. They don't disappear when you need them the most. You can count on them 24-7. And they also don't depend on the kind of complicated infrastructure you need for natural gas, where currently in Texas they're having trouble with uh, with the pipelines. And with uh, with both coal and nuclear, they, they store a lot of fuel right there at the at the site. And so... It doesn't matter if the temperature drops, you're going to continue to have uh, reliable electricity. We've seen this increasingly around the country as there have been legislative mandates for green energy, so-called. Actually, there's nothing about wind or solar that's good for the environment. They're both bad for the environment. But as these legislative mandates have come into being and, and more and more places around the country have had to rely on wind and solar energy, we're seeing this increasingly. We're seeing blackouts. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, problems like we've had in Minnesota, where there's been a shortage of natural gas, uh, where, where there's no wind uh, electricity because it's too cold or the wind isn't, isn't blowing. And we've actually had uh, 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 utilities asking people to leave their homes and putting them up in hotels uh, so that they wouldn't freeze. And, and asking uh, customers to turn their thermostats down to 63 degrees and not take hot showers. Uh, so, so as we move away from reliable sources of energy, there are some consequences of that that people are really not going to like. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are pleased to be joined now by James Bovard. Uh, Jim is the author of 10 books. He's a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, a frequent contributor to The Hill, and a contributing editor for The American Conservative. Jim, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Jim, I want to start by talking to you about a piece that you have got um, in the uh, American Institute for Economic Research and it's titled, uh, Sovereignty Still Rests with the People, Not Congress. 
and you make some really basic points in this in this article, uh, taking off from something that happened during the uh, impeachment of uh, former President Donald Trump. Describe that uh, to our listeners, if you would. Well, it's um, it's sort of hard to get a handle on that impeachment process because you're kind of like peeling an onion with so many different layers of nonsense. Uh, but but watching the um, the uh, floor the floor action on, uh, in the Senate on Thursday, I saw Congressman Jamie Raskin. He was talking about how Congress had all this power, and he was uh, he, he leads in there. He talks about Abraham Lincoln and the Declaration of the Independence, and then he quotes uh, the first sentence of the Constitution, and then he says, uh, and then he announces that the sovereign power of the people flowed right into Congress, and. This is why apparently Congress has absolute power and why Congress can do whatever it wants and why we don't need to worry about elective dictatorship because that's what the founding fathers wanted. Uh, and it was, it, it was an absolute travesty of, of, um, of American values and, of, uh, and the history of American uh, constitutional uh, debates. Uh, but it's, it's a kind of hokum that's just thrown out so commonly in Washington that people don't even notice. It's like a dog bites man story. And, and Jim, can I, can I interrupt you just for a moment there? Because what's going on here, uh, you know, Jamie uh, Raskin, a uh, congressman, um, is being hailed for this speech as uh, as a public intellectual, you know, as an um, oh, yeah. ex- expositor of the Constitution. And people like Congressman Dean Phillips, who's a complete nobody, uh, described him as America's professor. So it's not like this is a slip of the tongue. You know, this this claim that the sovereign power of the people has all been given to Congress under the Constitution, flowed right into Congress. This is something that's being hailed as a brilliant brilliant insight uh, by the Democrats. Yeah, and I was, you know, uh, uh, I was watching it, and I was trying so hard to have new respect for Congress, but, you know, I saw that line, and I just lost it. So, but, and it was, it's a funny part of the speech. It's on uh, Thursday afternoon. If people want to go back and look at the tapes, uh, 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 Congressman Raskin is going, comprehensive, vast powers that all of you um, uh, know so well, and that's all of us. The power comes to all of us, and it's like it makes Congress sound like a wonderful club, but you and I are not in it. Yeah, we had some power once, but we gave it to them. That's it's kind of like uh, yeah, it's kind of well, like Jean Jacques Rousseau, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know. yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> maybe with a little bit of Thomas Hobbes thrown in, as far as you know. Well, you know, the sovereignty is absolute because otherwise you'd have chaos, uh, and it's. It, but it's typical of how the, the uh, how the people who the media thinks are the smartest people in Congress. This is how they talk in public. Good Lord knows what they say behind closed doors. And, and so let's talk a little bit about the consequences of of this. And as you say, Jim, it's kind of a it's kind of a dog bites man story. I mean, the lust for power among politicians is not exactly a new phenomenon, right? But but let's talk about the practical implications. I mean, the Constitution is intended to describe a government of, of limited and delegated powers. And that has just about gone out the window. Uh, absolutely. And, it's, and to see the strutting in the House and the Senate about all the power they have, I mean, for instance, I mean, uh, it, just, it was only two months ago that Congress passed a uh, bill that was almost 6,000 pages long, spending $2 trillion, and the members of Congress did not bother reading it before they passed it because that was their right, because they were elected, so they have this right to spend trillions of dollars without even knowing what they're doing, 
but since they were, um, um, it's almost as if they think they have holy power, uh, like they've been sainted. But that was uh, that was kind of the storyline which came out after January 6th, when a number of members of Congress were saying that their holy space, their sacred space, had been violated. And, and I'm thinking, uh, if you're if we're talking about sacred space, how about the uh, the private homes that get banged up by SWAT teams that Congress finances? But that's a different subject. Well, it's not completely different. How about all the the stores and shops and so on, as well as homes owned by people in the city of Minneapolis, for example, two miles of which were burned down by rioters? Uh, you know, the, 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 that was actually encouraged, encouraged by a lot of government officials, including Kamala Harris, who, who helped to bail out some of the arsonists. Uh, and, and yet, if anybody penetrates their inner sanctum, oh, my gosh, you know, that's a completely yeah. different story. Yeah, it's it's very telling to see how the Washington media has portrayed January sixth. I mean, uh, and you have and you have uh, federal judges and prosecutors basically wanting to wreck the lives of anyone who stepped into the Capitol. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a minority of folks that day who assaulted police, and I'm all in favor of prosecuting them to the full extent of the law. But you had uh, you had a lot more people who just kind of wandered in there like tourists and, and kind of gawked and took their photos and gee whiz and. There, there was at least there was at least one entrance, Jim. You see, you can see this on video where, for inexplicable reasons, I don't know why, but there was an entrance where the guards were just kind of waving people in. You know, come on in, folks, and they're they're walking in and they're staying between the rope lines as they go yeah. in, and they've got their cameras like tourists. And they're taking pictures. So yeah, there are some people who absolutely should be arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and jailed. But there's a lot of other people who just, as you say, kind of wandered in. Right, but and it, it's it's uh, appalling to me to see the enthusiasm for you know throwing uh, charging everybody with sedition or conspiracy to overthrow the government or other charges. And I'm thinking, you know, look, I mean, and a lot of what was said was simply redneck bluster. I mean, you've got all these um, you have all these editorial writers who went to the North, to the Ivy League schools who never lived in the mountains of Virginia and didn't hear like this is how rednecks talk, you know. I mean, you know, they're always making empty threats, and it's like, uh, but to see how this is being framed, and now you've got Nancy Pelosi saying we've got to have a 9-11 type commission to find the truth, I mean, that's a really bad model, because the uh, first 9-11 commission didn't find much truth, so... Well, the whole thing in some ways is kind of ridiculous, but but it does exemplify the point that you make in this piece, which is the fact that the the members of Congress, House and Senate alike, uh, do not view themselves as fellow citizens with the rest of us who have been chosen temporarily to represent their constituents in Washington. They really do see themselves as the elect and as as members of a class that, as you said earlier, you and I, unfortunately, just are not members of. Yeah, and and so much of that swagger has come out since January sixth, and and uh, you know it was it was striking to, it's almost as if we're supposed to assume that any vague threat to congressmen is worse than anything the government could do to us, uh, but there is an awful lot of Americans whose lives have been ravaged by Congress, things that Congress did or Congress financed, and yet that doesn't count because uh, they are the will of the people, and it's just there's so much smoke blown. Um, towards congressmen and they get this sense and but there's almost no uh, decency as far as the constitution because a bill of rights had all these do not enter signs of property rights due process second amendment firearms uh freedom of speech 
Congress, uh, uh, you know, especially this year, Congress has been showing their contempt for that. It's like, no, no, you know, these are special times. But it's the same thing that we've heard in the past from Congress, and I'm hoping that the latest episode will uh, further undermine people's trust in Congress. Well, I certainly hope so. And as you say, uh, not only has, you know, the the Second Amendment has been under siege for a long time, right? Even more so today uh, when people need it the most. But the First Amendment, I mean, the open hostility uh, toward the freedom of speech of anybody who's not part of their club, I I think is uh, frightening. Yes, and this is part of uh, my concern about how they're going to try to exploit the January 6th, uh, what happened, and they're going to try to have a say, well, we've got to ban extremism, we've got to have a new definition of domestic terrorism, and, uh, you know, this is something which can go after free speech real fast, and there have been various times in the past where I've written things where I was denounced for, and it's like, uh, okay, fine, you know, I'm used to that, but if you have federal charges all of a sudden it's kind of like well that gets, you know that gets that gets kind of dicier so uh but but the systemic intolerance and the hatred there's just so much hatred at this point in dc and it's being fueled by um you know major parties and major players uh, unfortunately that that is sad but true we are talking with james bovard we're going to have more uh with uh, with james right after these uh, messages Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Jim Bovard. And Jim, uh, for this segment, I want to I want to change the topic uh, to something that is, that is really close to my heart, and that is the destructive role that the teachers unions have long played in our political life. And I want to talk in particular about your piece at the uh, American Conservative, uh, which is titled "Teachers Unions Have Always Been Terrible." Uh, t- tell our listeners what that's all about. Well, this is uh, pulling from some pieces that I've done actually over the last 40 years on some of the horrendous abuses that uh, the uh, National Education Association and uh, American Federation of Teachers have done. Folks don't realize how the teachers have been in the forefront of lowering educational standards. Uh, there, was, uh, there was the uh, National Education Association was saying 40 years ago that the that back to basics was basically a right-wing conspiracy. And it's like... Um, Reading standards have fallen so much in schools in spite of a huge amount of increase in spending. And part of the reason things have gone down is because the teacher unions have pushed to have uh, lower standards. And teacher unions have also pushed a huge amount of um, you know, propaganda in the schools. So instead of spending more time on reading and math, we're having death education or climate education or, you know, gender education. Um, but... Um, it's worked out very badly, and it's part of the reason American schools are falling further and further behind other parts of the world. Yeah, as you say, the, the teachers' unions have been a terrible force for, for a long, long time, and, and there's been no accountability. You know, in my state, Minnesota, the organization that I run, a think tank called Center of the American Experiment, we recently put out a report that, that talked about how spending on K-12 through education has skyrocketed for decades, higher, 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 in response to these endless demands of the teachers' union. 
uh, while results have slipped lower, lower, lower. And, and, and why is it, Jim, do you think that there is so little accountability in, in public education? Well, uh, there's a number of reasons. First of all, it's a government program, and it's, they're very hard to make accountable. But what you've had is that the teacher unions have basically bought the politicians, so the politicians have handed control of the schools to the teacher unions. And there's, uh, you know, and um, thanks to that, we have no fault teaching. It doesn't matter what happens. It's never the fault of the teacher. The answer is to uh, spend more money, as you said. Uh, but there's also uh, teacher unions have become accustomed to just demonizing anybody who doesn't um, kowtow to their demands. I mean, you had the Chicago teacher unions um, a couple months ago saying that the push to reopen schools is based on sexism and racism. And it's like, uh, well, no, actually it's based on science because you look at the Catholic schools and they're reopening and they're doing fine in most places. But you have, I mean, this is one of the most brazen power abuses in recent American history, you have a union who's basically flexing its muscles, and, and as a result, you've got a huge increase in students becoming uh, more ignorant. And um, the thing we're always hearing about here in Maryland, for instance, is we've got to raise property taxes and spend more money to close the achievement gap. But uh, this pandemic shutdown has uh, boosted the number of black and Hispanic students failing in schools by 500%. Uh, but you know it doesn't matter because teachers feel entitled to a zero risk, a zero risk entitlement and full pay, um, unlike a lot of other American workers, like grocery store workers. So, so it seems to me, Jim, that one possible silver lining of this whole COVID shutdown fiasco uh, is that people, some people at least, are finally starting to catch on to the teachers' unions. I think in a lot of places around the country. Parents, in particular, are paying attention, and parents want the schools to open for a lot of reasons, uh, but primarily because remote learning has turned out to be a disaster, as, as you just said. I mean, it, it varies from place to place, but something like a third of all the kids just don't do it. You know, they never show up. They never check in. They don't take a test. They don't complete an assignment. They're just gone. And, and, and naturally, it's going to be the kids who are most at risk, uh, who are most likely just to drop out. When, when school becomes uh, remote. So, so I think parents across the country are finally catching on to the fact that, you know, here we have the World Health Organization, we have CDC saying, no, no, schools should open. In Europe, the schools are reopening. Uh, as you said, the Catholic schools, private schools reopening. And yet the public schools are just willfully uh, out of business as a result of the demands of the teachers' union. And, and do you yeah. think parents are finally starting to catch on? Uh, some are. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if it's enough, but I mean, this is brazen hostage taking, but it's the same thing the teacher unions have done sporadically over, you know, for 40 years. Uh, but there's such an adverse impact. And this is, this is a, uh, the, uh, the school shutdown is a major reason why so many women have left the workforce because, you know, they got to stay home and take care of the kids. Uh, but there, there's such an entitlement mentality by so many of the teacher activists as far as like, you know, any teacher is like, should, it's sort of like the members of Congress. Every teacher should be considered holy and not exposed to any risk. But, you know, uh, there was a wonderful saying, um, saying by, um, by Henry Thoreau that, um, saying that uh, Henry Thoreau said, a man sits as many risks as he runs. And part of my part of what's so bad about this is that the teachers are acting like shutting down the schools has no adverse impact. Uh, but you know, this is blighting people's lives. You've got a huge increase in uh, young people committing suicide. 
um, a huge increase in depression. And, you know, this, this is a lost year that a lot of these kids will never get back. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. Now, again, if we're looking for a silver lining, uh, one thing that has happened is that a lot of parents have been forced to start thinking about alternatives to the public schools, which are just not serving their kids. And so we have seen a real increase in uh, in charter school enrollment, private school enrollment, homeschooling. And and what do you think? I mean, th- th- this could have some positive long-term benefits if, if parents really start to think seriously about what the alternatives to these failing public schools could be. I agree. I mean, uh, that is one of the brightest rays of hope from this entire pandemic. Uh, folks, uh, parents are waking up. Parents need to recognize – parents uh, – Parents are recognizing that they can't trust the government for their own children's mental growth. And uh, having parents take more responsibility for that would be a huge plus. I mean, not only that, but so much of what the kids are forced to read in school is this, it's no wonder kids hate reading. I mean, it's sort of like, sort of like Mark Twain's story in The Jumping Frog. We had to spend six weeks on that. It's like, I never wanted to read Mark Twain again until I left school and then found out, oh, Mark Twain's wonderful, but, you know, the things that you read in school is like being beaten over your head. Well, it's only getting worse, too, Jim. I mean, I mean I'm sure Mark Twain is one of the better things surviving in the public schools now. You know, they're having him read all kinds of tendentious nonsense. Oh. It's all race, class, gender, just horrible stuff, you know, that, among other things, is just boring. Yes, boring is the most important thing. I mean, I think back to my my years in public schools; they were most uh, they were the most brain numbing experience of my life. Um, and during that time, I lost my joy of reading. As soon as I graduated, the joy of reading came back. So, um, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm skeptical about government schools and government unions. Well, let's hope that as more parents explore options and actually take advantage of alternatives to to the public schools, one consequence of that ought to be growth in the, in the school choice movement. You know, as, as, as parents see other parents pursuing different alternatives, I, I think it's going to be hard for the teachers' unions to forever block uh, real meaningful school choice, especially in urban areas. We're up against a break here, Jim. Uh, Jim Bovard, thank you so much for being on the program. We'll be back with more after this. It's a nice day to start again. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Thaddeus McCotter, former chairman of the Republican House Policy Committee, a contributor to American Greatness, and the Monday co-host of the John Bachelor Show. Thaddeus, thanks for being on the program. Oh, thanks for having me back. Thaddeus, I want to start out by, by talking about a piece that you've got at American Greatness. And the, the title of the piece is Crony Socialism's Death Throws. I want to talk about it in part, that is, because it's so optimistic. You know, not everybody on the right is is feeling optimistic these days. So maybe just start by telling us, when you say crony socialism, what, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about the combination that we saw in the Time Magazine article where the Democrats boasted about, quote, fortifying democracy, when in reality they were rigging an election for partisan advantage. 
by using private grants and other things to get elected officials and clerks and secretaries of state to try to unilaterally change rules so they could win the 2020 presidential election. And yet, when you look at some of the numbers that went underneath that, you saw Republicans winning the House, and we would have held the Senate, but for unforced errors on our part. So when you look at it, you start to see that the Democrats, especially in the wake of the impeachment of Donald Trump and some of the things that Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi is saying now about setting up a commission, the reality is this is not the strength and confidence that you see coming out of a movement that believes they are the wave of the future. In short, they're using President Trump, former President Trump, both as a target and a shield for their own failed policies, which are already starting to fail. That's the Keystone Pipeline people. They lost their jobs due to Joe Biden's executive order. And they're acting out of fear and weakness. If, look, if you thought your policies were going to work for the American people, you wouldn't be messing around with impeachment. You'd be getting those policies done. You'd be talking to the American people about it, and you'd be persuading them that you are the party that should be able to help America shape the next decade. Instead, they're looking backwards. They're hiding behind Trump because they don't want people to see the divisions in their own party and the abject failures of the policy they're trying to foist upon us again. It's really extraordinary, Thaddeus. I mean, here's an incoming administration, and all they want to talk about is the last administration. You know, they don't want to talk about their plans, you know, their their programs. For, for the last four years, the, the Democrats program really has consisted of hating Donald Trump. And it, it seems like they just can't let go. Yeah, it's just what unites them, the hatred of Donald Trump, the hatred of, of conservative populism, Republicans, and what they also and, and the redistribution of wealth. That's basically what cements them in varying degrees. After that, the policies have failed. Look, you got you got the new Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, talking about how we're going to have high-speed rail. This is an old, antiquated idea from, what, the 80s and 90s that has failed in California already, and yet he's trying to get out there as if somehow this is some cutting-edge technology that we're all supposed to, wow, this is the smart party at work again. Spare me. They have old ideas. It's based on a failed socialistic policies. Basically, it comes out of the cesspool of Rousseau's thinking, if you want to go all the way back. And they're trying to pawn it off as somehow anything other than the regressive ideology that it is. And it fails. And it's going to fail again. Remember, it's important for people who support the, uh, making America great again and keeping it that way. When you have to think about they're trying to tell you that they're so powerful, everything yet they do strikes smacks of weakness, fear, and it is a defensive posture that is non-sustainable over a period of time. You know, one way of looking at the Democratic Party is that um, there, there, there are some members of that party, the, the squad, for example, who are openly in favor of socialism and believe it can work. And then there are other members of the party who, who kind of yearn for socialism but are painfully aware that it doesn't work. And, and that's maybe one way of looking at the, the, the tension or the great divide that we see in that, in that party. Yes, it's a much greater divide than there is in the, in the Republican Party or the populist movement between those two wings of it. So when you look at it, the Democrats are arguing over an essential fundamental core element of their ideology. They're not arguing over the person of Donald Trump or how he executed his time in the administration. What they're talking about is a bedrock economic uh, 
economic difference that cannot be bridged and cannot be papered over. And one of the things that we have to remember about the, the squad, quote unquote, is the fact that if they're such socialists, how come they're not screaming about Facebook being taken, uh, being, uh, being, pub being turned into a public entity? How come they're not talking about Twitter being nationalized? How come they're not talking about breaking up the great oligarch uh, of the great uh, monopolies and big tech? Why aren't they doing that? Because they're in bed with them. That's why, that's when I talk about crony socialism, when you look, it, and again, they bragged about it themselves in Time Magazine about what they've done and how, and how connected that they are. So when you start to look at that, you say to yourself, how can someone who says they're a socialist continue to be a subservient uh, to the corporate interests out there in Silicon Valley? We're going to be back with more with Thaddeus McCotter after these commercial messages. The Dan Proft Show. We are back on the Dan Proft Show with Thaddeus McCotter, former chairman of the Republican House Policy Committee, contributor to American Greatness, and Monday co host of the John Bachelor Show. Thaddeus, we've been talking about your piece at American uh, Greatness, which is titled Crony Socialism's Death Throws. And I like this piece in part because it's one of the most optimistic things I've seen written in the last few weeks is a lot of conservatives have been feeling kind of uh, kind of beaten down. It's good to uh, to get this 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 breath of, of, of optimism. Well, I'm Gen X, so I'm a, I'm a Reagan uh, Republican. I mean, it's really what I saw his optimism. I saw how his policies helped Americans, helped uh, people in my neighborhoods, and that's why I became a Republican. And it's the optimism, the great faith in the ultimate, the, the faith in the American people is one of the key elements of what made Ronald Reagan, and I believe what makes the Republican Party great. And so when you look at it, that's why we want people to live their own lives. We want less government control over individuals. That's what puts us in tune with what's happening, both in terms of people's tech, how the technology is expanding people's own decision making and power over their own uh, futures. We are in tune with that. And that is why I am optimistic about the American people. One of the things that conservatives and populists and Republicans should never do is denigrate the genius of the American people. They should never look down on them. They should never talk about low information voters. It's our job is anybody who cares about the country, if you believe that there's something going on, then inform other people about it. And that's, like I said, what scares the left so much is what scares the left so much is the facts coming out. And I think we just saw CNN the other night. They talked about Trump 52 times or something. They talked about Mario, Andrew Cuomo once in spite of the fact that he was putting infected nurse patients in nursing homes and infecting other people in, in long term care facilities. Which was which is a complete malfeasance of office, if not worse, and yet they don't put that information in front of people. Instead, they give them an Emmy Award, right? Yeah. So you have to trust the American people. You have to put the facts before them, and once they have the facts in front of them, I have every reason to believe that they make the right decision. As Abraham Lincoln said, "Why should there not be a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people? Is there any better or equal hope in the world?" And the answer is no. 
One of the things you talked about before the break, Thaddeus, is that the Democrats, now that they're once again in control of, of, uh, of the government, really all three branches, or, or rather both branches of Congress and, and, and the White House, you know, they, they are embarking on failed, obsolete policies. And you mentioned the example of this incredibly expensive and unworkable fixed rail system that they're now back to trying to construct. I would add green energy to that list. You know, it's really it's almost right. it, it's almost funny how, you know, we've had rolling blackouts in California. Now we've got blackouts across a big swath of, of Texas. Uh, and other places across the country, and I've written about this on my website, Powerline, but this all has to do with the fact that we are in the process of decommissioning reliable energy sources like coal and nuclear and replacing them with unreliable energy sources like wind and solar, which, among other things, don't work when it gets cold. Yeah, their approach, I used to, he did a video a long time ago on the House floor, it was called Speaking Democrat. And what, what I said is you can take democratic words and translate them into how real people talk. And I said, green jobs equals unemployment. So when the Democrats say we're going to take your blue collar job and give you a green collar job, what they're really saying is we're going to take your blue collar job and give you unemployment. It's kind of the winky energy strategy. I will take your hamburger today, but I'll give you two tomorrow. But you never see the two tomorrow. When you talk about what Biden did with the Keystone Pipeline and you saw Trumpka from the FLCIO and some of these other people, oh, I can't believe you did it so soon, you sold out your members. You, you pandered for a man in an election for, a, for someone who was the architect of the unemployment of your members. That's well, we've crazy. seen, you know, union, union leadership has been selling out its members for a long time. Isn't that right? I mean, I think we've well, been seeing this. Well, not the teachers' union. Apparently not the teachers' union. They've just been selling out uh, uh, Selling out the kids. <laughs> selling out the kids, yeah. right. Yeah, good point. That's a little bit different. But, I mean, we've seen that in both in the 2016 election and in the 2020 election when all kinds of union members are out there voting for uh, for Donald Trump, even though their leaders are, are telling him to vote for Hillary Clinton or, uh, or Joe Biden. And, of course, we saw the same thing in the 80s with uh, – with Ronald Reagan. Oh, absolutely. The Reagan Democrats, my father was one. So when you, when, you, when you look at this, when you talk about energy, everybody supports, and we talked about this back when I, a long time ago when I was in Congress, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, is we want an all of the above energy strategy. We support green energy, but it has to be market-based and science-based. And you can't just run around saying we don't like this energy, we don't like that one. We want to maximize all energy sources without governmental fiat causing more problems than it's solving. I think you can find common ground. The problem is the left is completely in the climate cult. They are completely against any type of, of moderation or any type of rational, sane public policy regarding energy because they have their core tenets of their secular religion. And I guess God is gay and wants us all to freeze to death. Well, they're bumping up against reality here, I and mean, the laws of physics are simply not going to allow our energy system to be converted to wind and solar. Uh, it, it can't happen. Uh, I mean, among many other things, the minerals that it would take, the materials that would work, it would take to build that vast, vast array of wind turbines uh, don't exist. It would be the biggest mining project in the history of the world with un, unimaginable environmental consequences if we ever actually tried to implement this 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 vision, you know, of this of the allegedly yeah. allegedly green future. That is, well, got just a, yeah. Yeah, go, go ahead. Okay. Well, I'm from Detroit. I mean, we we like our cars. We like people to be able to have mobility and pursue the American dream. 
And to have a bunch of bureaucrats and other people trying to tell us that we're all going to have electric cars without telling us where we're going to store the batteries or who's going to make them. Are they going to be made here, communist China, where else? These people are trying to undo the Industrial Revolution and take us back to an old economy we used to have. It's called hunting and gathering and turning places like Detroit. And let's not forget the national security implications of taking what used to be the arsenal of democracy, namely my, my hometown of Detroit, and turning it into an urban farm. Think about the think about the ramifications of that. Well, that's right. They bas- basically are trying to get us to return to technologies that have been obsolete since the 18th and 19th uh, centuries, hunting and, which are and gathering. Cause terrible problems <laughs> if we seriously tried to rely on them. Yeah, hunting and gathering. You know, grab grab your grab your stone chisel. All right. Well, no wonder the Democrats don't want to talk about their affirmative platform, their vision of America's future. They're they're regressive. Their whole ideology stems from Rousseau, who wrote in refutation of the Enlightenment, not in support of it. That's right. Thaddeus McCowder, thank you so much for being on the Dan Prof Show. We'll be right back with more after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. Well, we all remember what happened last summer when there were riots across the United States and, and some of the worst of those riots happened here in Minnesota, which is where I live and where I'm coming to you uh, tonight. And uh, and there was a big movement across the country to defund the police. Uh, the claim was that the police are are preying on minority communities. They're just wantonly murdering uh, black men in particular, uh, that that minority communities would be better off without a police department and that maybe the police could be replaced by social workers and, and on and on. And the city of Minneapolis was one of the hotbeds of this movement to literally uh, defund the police. And some Democrats have tried to say, oh, we didn't mean that literally. We didn't really mean defund the police. That was just kind of symbolic. Well, no, actually, uh, they did mean it. And and other Democrats, people like Ilhan Omar, have chimed in and said, no, no, no. We, we know what defund means, and we mean what we say. And so the Minneapolis City Council actually voted uh, last summer to to put on the the city charter uh, to put on for the next election an amendment to the Minneapolis city charter which currently requires a police force of a certain kind a uh, certain size to to put out an amendment that would that would basically defund the police and replace the police department with uh, you know some some something else a social worker oriented kind of organization and that city charter amendment had to go through the the uh, uh, charter. Uh, what's it called? There's there, there's an there's an outfit, the, the the city charter commission, to go on the ballot, and the city charter commission just quietly <laughs> deep sixed that initiative, uh, expecting, I suppose, the worm was going to turn, and sure enough, the worm did turn because what happened over the summer and beyond is that the city of Minneapolis and surrounding suburbs too have been hit by a tremendous increase in crime, especially violent crime, especially homicide and other shootings. And as a result of that, there's been an outcry 
and and a demand from citizens, including lawsuits, um, alleging that the city of Minneapolis has has allowed the police department to fall below the legally required level. Citizens are clamoring uh, not for 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 defunding the police, but for refunding the police. And sure enough, uh, there's a news story here a day or two ago that uh, the city of Minneapolis is now planning to spend $6.4 million on recruiting more police officers as a result of the sharp increase in crime that the city has seen. And and as a, as a bit of a fig leaf, uh, the city is saying that they're looking for officers who have degrees in criminology, social work, psychology, or counseling, which is fine, which is fine. The point is they're police officers. But the comment I made on Powerline is that I'm guessing that the average police officer knows a lot more about social work, a lot more about psychology, and a lot more about counseling than most uh, degree holders in those fields. I think those are the kinds of things that police officers on the beat do every single day and, for the most part, do, do very well. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Mark Bauerlein, Professor of English at Emory University, a senior editor at First Things, and author of the book, The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. Mark, thanks for being on the program. I'm glad to join you. Mark, you have got a uh, piece at American Greatness, uh, the title of which is Conservatives Must read Marx. And I'll tell you, I read, I read some Marx decades ago. I'd rather get a root canal than have to read Karl Marx again. <laughs> but why don't you, let's jump in and, and tell our, our, our listeners why you, you think conservatives need to pay some attention to Marx. Well, first of all, the conservatives need to read the liberal masters, you know, the, the thinkers in the liberal tradition in order to understand what liberals, especially young liberals, are really all about. We've got to know their work better than they do. They don't have to know Hayek. They don't have to know Edmund Burke. They don't need to worry about that because they're going into institutions which are pretty much run by liberals and conservative thinking simply has no place there. That puts a greater burden on young conservatives. We have to know more than they do if we want to function in these institutions, which, again, they they control. The specific thing about Marx this time is that Karl Marx has a lot of ideas. They've changed the world, and one of them is very important for conservatives to recognize. It's not Marx on private property. It's not Marx on the labor theory of value or commodity fetishism. It is Marx in his discussion of class relations, class consciousness. Now, conservatives don't like this because we don't like class warfare. That's the game the left plays. Well, yes, 
The left is playing a game of class warfare. They've been doing it all along. Liberals are now doing it too. They are now looking at conservatives as a distinct group, and they're hitting us economically. You know, class is mostly economically defined, according to Marx. They're hitting us economically. So when they see Tucker Carlson defending Donald Trump's wall, they don't debate Tucker Carlson on his ideas. They don't go after the facts, the evidence. No, they try to boycott and intimidate the people who advertise on his show. They don't debate conservatives over their ideas. They try to get them fired from their jobs for expressing, let's say, a biblical definition of marriage. They're going after us as a class, our economic ground, the pipeline of hiring. And Marx is very good in explaining how class warfare works. He defines history as class struggle. That's what it's really about. He understands people as engaged in primarily economic production, economic survival. And this is what the left trades in. They're playing a game on us, and if we don't understand the rules of the game, and if we don't start functioning effectively within that game, well, we're going to see what is happening just getting worse. You make the comment in your, your piece here at American Greatness, it's not a culture war, not anymore. There is no common civic ground on which liberals and conservatives meet and hash things out. I, I think that's right. And it, so you're saying it's not a culture war, it's a class war. It's largely about economics. Well, how then do conservatives uh, fight and win a class war? I, I, this is the great challenge for us. What do we do? I mean, for, for, the, for the left, Everything is political. Everything. Even the bedroom is a political space to the left. Government, controlling government is fundamental to them. Getting office space in institutions, that's what matters to them. We don't think that way. We don't believe politics is, is everything. Most conservatives tend to have some kind of transcendence. They get above class relations say we don't want to spend all our time thinking about government i mean i've been in academia and i've seen how the leftists on the faculty they were very good at getting on committees these were committees that are you know university-wide committees or department committees that most of us didn't want to do you know we had our teaching we had our writing and reading to do over there in the humanities or we had our labs to, to take care of in the sciences we didn't want to get caught up in all the personnel issues and policy issues and nuts and bolts of governance within the campus. Well, this is where the left was so good. They're so much better at personnel than conservatives are. I mean, look at Donald Trump. Donald Trump was great in so many ways, but boy, was he terrible at managing personnel in the swamp, within the White House even, because we, we just don't think – this way. The left understands institutional politics. They go after little things like how hiring is done. They can insert questions into the hiring process. The rest of us don't even notice until it's already done, such as we're going to have every candidate for a job in academia have to compose a diversity statement. And answer the question, how will you foster diversity 
in the universities. Now, this is a totally ideological litmus test. If conservatives tell the truth, they don't get hired. Well, the rest of us, we didn't even notice this going on at the time. The le- this was the long march through the institution. While we were writing best-selling books like The Closing of the American Mind, while we were debating on the talk shows and beating the leftists very well, the leftists were getting people onto school boards, onto city councils. They were taking over human resources offices. They were getting to positions of control within the institutions, and now they got it. This is where we are today, and conservatives have to wake up. You can't play this game unless you start thinking in ways of personnel. Now, your question, what do we do? I I don't know. I, I, I mean, that's what we're all struggling to do. How can we be effective in battling something that we don't even want to battle? We don't even like to get into this. But, hey, if you care about your kids, if you care about your schools, if you care about your churches and your neighborhoods, if you care about your taxes, if you care about your country, you better start thinking of things to do. And that doesn't mean getting the corporate tax rate lowered two points. Yes, I, I think you're right. I think some of the traditional debates between between liberals and conservatives, I would say they've become mood. I still want lower taxes, but the the scene of battle has shifted. I'll just put it that way. Hey, by the way, you know, the left has always understood bureaucracy, has always understood organizations better than the yeah. right. A classic example of that is Joseph Stalin. You know, he was one of the world's great bureaucrats, and he, and he got himself appointed as General Secretary of the Communist Party of the USSR. And at the time, people didn't realize it was that big a deal. There was like a one-paragraph story in Pravda. You know, Joseph Stalin appointed General Secretary, but what he understood was that from that position, he ultimately could become the ruler of the Soviet Union, and he did. Uh, through you know basically through bureaucratic uh, means and uh, there's just there's no such consciousness on the right no i mean i i quoted one little of uh, one example of Stalin's truism you know he had this he had this kind of wit uh where he would condense bureaucratic wisdom down and one piece of wisdom it's a frightening one he said no man no problem if you get rid of people, you don't need to worry about their ideas. You don't need to battle a truth if you get rid of the person. I mean, another one, when people asked him, someone asked him how he could bring so many of the great heroes of the revolution of 1917 into the show trials in the 30s and end up convicting them. How, how these, these great heroic historic figures ended up as the ones accused of being enemies of the state and, and, you know, executed, bullet to the head. How could you do that, Stalin? And Stalin said, well, of course. It's only the manly, principled, noble ones whom you have to kill. The rest can be bought or intimidated. That's a good manager at work. Yeah. And the line, the Stalin line, no man, no problem. In today's world, it's not so much that the leftists are shooting us, although it could come to that. But what, but that's cancel culture. You know, you get rid of the person, drive him out of public life. You've gotten rid of the problem. Hey, we got to run to a break. We got to run to a break, Mark, but we are going to be back with more. And I want to talk about your new book. 
as well when we come back after these messages. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we are talking with mark bauerlein professor of english at emory university and a senior editor at first things Mark, you wrote a book about 11 or 12 years ago now called The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. Rumor has it you are working on a sequel to that book. Uh, tell us about it, please. Well, it, it, I, I sent in the manuscript recently. I'll leave you out with Regnery. But the title is Dangerous Utopians. The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. And the thesis of that book is what happens to a 15-year-old in 2008 who is tied up on the screen, doesn't learn much history, doesn't care much about civics, doesn't read newspapers or read books, for that matter, literature and good music and good art. And that was about the heroes of America. What happens to that kid uh, 13 years later when he's 28 years old and he had such a bright conception of his future. He would walk around with 300 pictures of himself in his pocket and he had a Facebook page with hundreds of friends and he could document his life and the world was all before him and when he was 30 he was supposed to uh, be, be wealthy and have uh, have a lot of uh, romantic involvement, and then he finds, oh my goodness, I'm I'm 30 years old. I've got kind of a crummy job. I I do contract work for businesses. I've got some student loan payments to make. I'm I'm online all the time, but I don't really have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and things aren't aren't really working out. These are the ordinary tribulations of adulthood, but they don't have the intellectual equipment to manage these disappointments. They don't go to church. They don't usually come out of strong families. They don't have really a, a, a meaningful support network. What do they do? They believe that the world should be so much better than it really is. They don't know why there is any suffering. Why isn't everybody happy? This is a formula for utopianism. We got to eliminate all racism from planet Earth. We got to eliminate all unhappiness, even the unhappiness of human beings who don't like the sexuality of their own biology. Everyone deserves to be happy. We can't judge anybody for anything. Everyone will be better off if only our vision prevails in the world. This is a utopian faith. This is the woke revolution in place. I mean, it has names. It's racial justice and social justice and, and woke. Uh, Black Lives Matter, elements of that. I mean, elements of Antifa. These are people who have fired up with these totally unrealistic visions of what humanity, of what life in the United States can be all about because they didn't get 
a good education. They didn't develop decent intellectual habits when they were young. And the mentors, my colleagues, didn't fight it. They didn't tell the kids, get off Facebook and read some Shakespeare. Stop listening to that rap garbage and try a little Mozart for a while instead. George Washington, the most important thing about George Washington is not that he owned slaves. There was something more important that George Washington about George Washington than that. The mentors didn't tell them. It was our fault. I mean, the first sentence of the other book is, what have we done to them? So this is, this is what paying for the tidal wave of screens, social media, Mark Zuckerberg hitting teenagers in the aughts. We're paying for it now with these little monsters who are canceling people, who are signing, signing up for boycotts and, and, and digital mobs and cry bullying, you know, the, the, the kids shrieking on the quad, where's my safe space? This is what we're paying. <laughs> well, and, but you know, I mean, Mark, you talk about the dumbing down of education. It's only getting worse. I mean, I've been writing on Powerline about about this movement to declare that mathematics is racist. And uh, it's terrible to say there's only one right answer to a math problem or a physics problem. And we need ethnomathematics, you know, where the answer all depends. And, and Shakespeare, uh, there's, uh, there's a piece I'm going to write about later in the day about efforts in the public schools to drive Shakespeare out. Shakespeare is white supremacy or you, or one right. one teacher says well I, I i i use marks you know to analyze to analyze shakespeare i mean it's only getting it's only getting worse isn't it what we've seen in the last 10 years is test scores are going down i mean you look at sat reading scores sat writing scores they're going down we've had multiculturalism coming into the high schools and more increasingly down the age ladder, multiculturalism more and more were the results. We see lower reading scores, lower math scores, and here is a very important point. The achievement gap between black and white has stalled for 20 years. It closed significantly in the 70s and 80s and through the 90s. It's been stalled now. We have a, we have a very difficult correlation for the left to accept. The more multicultural, the more culturally sensitive, the more diverse we find the schools getting, the more the achievement gap has frozen. It's not working, you guys. And you keep trying to push things. Do you think that your racialization of math is going to improve math scores? for African-American kids in the inner city? Do, do, I mean, do you have any evidence for these experiments? I mean, this is a utopian experiment going on. And they're not interested in the results. They're so taken with the vision that they don't look at the consequences. No, results in general to leftists are irrelevant, you know, other than their own power. Any other result is, you know, immaterial. This is one very important point. There are a lot of people who are taking this to the bank. I mean, Ibram Kendi was paid $20,000 by the Fairfax School District right here, uh, not far from where I live, to give, to give a 45-minute online lecture. And they bought $10,000, $20,000 worth of his books to hand out to everyone. I mean, Robin DiAngelo 
you see the lecture fees for the one fragility of whiteness. Look at the lecture fees she's she's pulling. I mean, you have huge financial incentives right now to be a woke ideologue. That's where the money is right now. If you go into Barnes and Noble, you'll see a woke table, a book right at the entrance. It's all here. All every everyone's got whiteness, whiteness. Of course, then when working class whites start to act like a class, as they did with Donald Trump's 2016, well, Donald Trump, even today, that is racism. Yeah, right. We're, we're going to have to hold it there, Mark. Next time I do this show, I'm going to have you back on for a dose of optimism because we need to know what in the world we conservatives, <laughs> really we normal Americans can do about some of these trends. Mark Bauerlein, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, sir. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight, and we are joined now by Jed Babin, former United States Deputy, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, and a contributor to the Washington Times and the American Spectator. Jed, thanks for being on the program. Hey, great to be with you, John. Jed, you've got a piece in The Spectator, which is uh, titled uh, Eating Biden's Lunch, and it's about uh, Biden and China. And Maybe just uh, let's just jump into that. What's, what's your theme here? Well, the basic point here is Biden is very soft on China and uh, his recent telephone call with Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, just shows how well the the Chinese are able to maneuver him in and out of things that we may not want him to be doing. Uh, He's kind of gullible, and uh, he's calling it and proving it every day. And what are some of the issues? You know, what's on the table right now between us and China where, where Biden has got to understand, you know, where our interests lie? Well, there are so many of them, it's it's kind of hard to parse them all out. But Let's just start with some of the highlights. Um, Last, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, he revoked Trump's executive order that prohibited foreign companies, a.k.a. China and Russia, countries like that, uh, from providing uh, computer and electronic equipment that would uh, control our power grid. So by doing that, by revoking Trump's order, uh, basically Biden is inviting China or Russia or North Korea or whoever to uh, sell us in very great discounts, some sort of equipment that they can control the power grid with. I mean, there's so many things like that going on. Uh, You know, you see his order this past week uh, that would, again, revoking a Trump order, uh, which would have required the uh, colleges and universities uh, to tell us, to tell the government, uh, if they are involved with these Confucius Institutes. The Confucius Institutes are Chinese government-operated institutions which are infiltrating our colleges and universities, getting them to change the curricula and make them more friendly to China. Uh, it just it goes on and on from there. I mean, we're talking about Huawei and 5G to, uh, to pretty much anything in the Ch- South China Sea to trade or whatever. China is engaged in everything we do, 
and, and they're doing very well in trying to overtake us and, uh, quite frankly, control us. You know, it's puzzling to me, uh, Jed, why, why would Joe Biden uh, reverse Trump's executive order and allow uh, China and Russia to sell equipment that can control our electricity grid? I mean, what's, what's the argument for doing that? I don't think there is one, John, frankly. I mean, the only thing you can say is that he wants to, you know, open up more trade or whatever, but that's just a fallacy. I mean, he does not have the ability. His mind does not connect national security to domestic policy. So it's not something that you would expect him to do. And, you know, he's going up and doing things like, you know, revoking that order and enabling China uh, to basically control our power grid, which is really a bizarre and a huge risk to national security. You know, what you, you made the comment, and I think it's a brilliant observation in this in this piece in The Spectator, that Joe Biden just doesn't understand the relationship between domestic policy and, and foreign policy. And that was something uh, President Trump, to his credit, did understand. And so now we have Joe Biden, whose top domestic priority seems to be climate change, you know, and green energy and all this, this stuff. And how, do, how does that how does how do the Chinese, you know, look on that 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 priority? Well, they look at it in two ways. Number one, for their own case and domestically in China. You know, they're building coal-fired power plants as fast as they can build them. And that is, of course, one of the greatest carbon emitters in the entire world. China is, I believe, the first uh, among the carbon emitters. We are the second and India is the third. So Biden is joining, rejoined, has rejoined the Paris Accord on Climate Change, which is going to well, effectively strangle our economy. And uh, China and India are going their merry way. They're not obeying any of the restrictions, and they're just not going to be participating in whatever you know, climate change initiatives Biden is coming up with. He wants to be the climate change president. And Xi Jinping really played on that in this phone call the two had last week. And he's talking about spending billions on climate change. Yeah, well, maybe. But the fact of the matter is he's increasing Biden's not only tension, uh, but his desire, his great desire to be the climate change president. And Lord only knows what's going to happen. I mean, you're seeing it right now. Actually, you are going to see right right now what's happening in Texas. You know, you've got wind turbines trying to produce electricity. Well, guess what? They're frozen and uh, (laughs) they're not working. So you want weather dependent energy supplies. That's what you're going to get with Mr. Biden. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm in Minnesota, Jed, and of course we, we we are well aware of the fact that when it gets cold, wind turbines don't work. In fact, they suck up energy because you got to heat the uh, heat the motors. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But but you're right. Yeah. These blackouts we're seeing, this is this is the future that Joe Biden apparently wants. We got to run to a break. We're going to be back uh, with more with Jed Babin after these messages. Oh, I'm Listen, the more you'll know, this is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with former uh, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, uh, Jed Babin. And before the break, Jed, we were talking about the kind of perverse devotion that that Joe Biden and his administration have to green energy, climate change, and so on, and how that plays right into the hands of adversaries like China. Yeah, and, you know, I saw a picture the other day. You probably saw it, too, 
Uh, it really sums up what this whole green energy nonsense is about. And I use the term nonsense advisedly. There was a helicopter trying to spray a de-icer compound on one of those frozen wind turbines in Texas. Now, of course, the helicopter is burning fuel, tens of gallons a minute. And what they're spraying on the uh, turbine, the wind turbine, is a carbon-based, an oil, petroleum-based uh, fluid to try to de-ice it. And then, of course, the wind turbine itself, which is made of petroleum products. So, right. you know, this whole green energy thing, wind energy, solar energy, it's all very nice when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. When the temperature drops, as you said earlier, it's just, it just doesn't work. Well, it's a disaster, but it's not only when it's cold. I mean, the most efficient wind turbines produce electricity about 40% of the time. 60% of the time, you're burning natural gas. They always pair up, you know, wind and natural gas. And so the idea that there's ever going to be, uh, you know, total reliance on wind and solar, I mean, these are really obsolete technologies. But but I, I want in the time we have remaining, uh, Jed, to kind of do a little bit of a world tour. And again, I, I, I love your comment that Joe Biden seems unable to understand the relationship between domestic policy and foreign policy. Let's talk about Russia a little bit, because Donald Trump really stood up to Russia in a number of ways, but the most important by far was encouraging the production of American Oil and gas. You know, Russia has been described as a heavily armed gas station. You know, that's basically their economy. <laughs> that's pretty good. I might. That's pretty good. I might steal that. <laughs> oh, you should steal it. It's a great line. But so here again. So so by by the first thing he does in office, Joe Biden cracks down on fracking. There's nothing that could possibly please the Russians more. Well, and the thing is, again, he's not connecting national defense and foreign policy with domestic policy and domestic needs. He doesn't see where the two intersect. And he doesn't understand the necessary connection between them. So what is he doing now with regard to Russia? Frankly, not much. But you have an, an, a, a situation here with uh, Alexei Navalny, the only real effective opponent to Vladimir Putin. Uh, at first, they tried to poison him. Oh, I'm sure Putin wasn't involved in that. And now they've got him in prison. So what is Mr. Biden saying about that? Um, nothing. You know, he has an opportunity here to pressure Russia, to pressure Putin. And, well, he's out to lunch. He just doesn't think it's very important. So one of the areas where uh, where Donald Trump was very successful in foreign policy was the Middle East. Uh, you know, he pulled us out of the this, this foolish Iran deal where we gave him the money up front in exchange for promises, which were, you know, essentially worthless. And uh, and so, of course, now uh, Biden and John Kerry want to want to resume that relationship for whatever purpose. And um, and we see the spectacle of um, of Joe Biden apparently calling every every world leader, with, with one exception, Benjamin Netanyahu. Where, where where do you see Biden heading heading in that region? Well, there's a, there's a lot to parse out there. Uh, let's start with Netanyahu. The fact is that Biden doesn't like Netanyahu on a very personal basis. Obama didn't either. Uh, Biden, I think it goes back to uh, don't hold me to the date, but it was like twenty. 12 or 2011, uh, when Biden was visiting Israel and uh, Netanyahu took the opportunity to announce a whole bunch of new settlements in uh, the West Bank, and Biden took that personally. So, you know, it's the kind of thing where the personal animosity between the two is not going to portend well for our relations in the Middle East. And the fact is that he's snubbing Netanyahu and snubbing Israel. I think it may not be as bad as it was under Obama. But Mr. Biden is going to be a very anti-Israel, anti-Netanyahu president. And that's dangerous for us and it's dangerous for the Middle East. 
Um, if you want to talk about Iran and the whole business business of the so-called JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the 2015 uh, nuclear weapons deal that Obama signed with Iran, uh, Biden now wants to get us back into it. Thank God Trump got us out in 2018, but now Biden wants to get us back in. And what he's trying to do, quite frankly, as I wrote in the Washington Times the other day, uh, he's putting a smile on Ayatollah Khomeini's face because he's doing two things. Number one, he's trying to bribe Iran into getting into the deal, into compliance itself. Of course, Iran is in multiple ways violating the agreement from enriching uranium to creating uranium metal to a whole variety of things. Uh, And they're not complying. He wants them to comply. They're saying we're not going to do anything to comply until you first relieve us of all the sanctions that Trump imposed. And Biden says, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. But in the meantime, he's trying to bribe them into various things. Well, for example, he uh, canceled our support for the Saudis' war with uh, the Yemeni tribe, the Houthis, uh, which are, of course, backed by Iran. Uh, He's also holding up arms sales to uh, Saudi Arabia and to the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, which, of course, uh, part of the reason they signed, the UAE signed the uh, Abraham Accords, which were historic and really would have led to uh, peace in the Middle East was, you know, they were isolating Iran. They were getting into a peace agreement with Israel. And now Biden is undercutting that because sale of the F-35s to the UAE was part of the price that the UAE agreed to uh, to sign those accords. So you have Biden trying to bribe Iran by doing those things, both of those things, the Saudi ending support for the Saudi war, ending the uh, or stopping the uh, arms sales. Those are both things that were intended to 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 basically. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stuck stuck with the word for a second. They're trying to bribe Iran into getting back into the deal. The other thing that's putting a smile on the Ayatollah's face is Biden is putting an awful lot of anti-Israeli people in his administration. You know, number one is John right. Kerry. Number right. two is Susan Rice. And now they have, well, just a, a bunch of others. Uh, there's some Matt Dunst or something like that who was... Um, yeah, some of these second-level people have got terrible records of being anti-Israel. That's right. Well, yeah, this this guy, uh, I forget his first name, but his name last name is Batar. And uh, he served in the Obama National Security Council. He's now going to be the director of intelligence operations for the Middle East for Biden. And he's a Palestinian-American. He's got loyalties, which I suspect are not entirely to the United States, and certainly he will have an oppositional attitude towards Israel. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Jed Babin, thanks for being on the show. It's shaping up as a long four years in foreign policy. I think we can sum it Amen, up brother. that way. And thanks you all for, thank you all for listening to the Dan Prop Show. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I don't know whether you've been hearing about it in the news or not, but there's an actual movement afoot in our public schools to decree that the sciences in general and mathematics in particular are racist. Now, how math can be racist is frankly beyond me, and it's probably beyond you too, but but this comes out of the state of Oregon. 
the Oregon Department of Education recently encouraged teachers to register for training that encourages ethnomathematics and argues, among other things, that white supremacy manifests itself in the focus on finding the right answer. And, and students being required to show their work, that also is being described by the state of Oregon, uh, Department of Education, as uh, racist and a manifestation of white supremacy. And here's a quote uh, from, uh, from the document being put out here by the state of Oregon, uh, upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuates objectivity as well as fear of open conflict. And objectivity, of course, is a white supremacist concept. So uh, that movement to declare math uh, racist and to try to do away with the idea that there's any such thing as the correct answer uh, to a math question uh, is gaining steam in America's schools. So two plus two equals four. Uh, you know, three squared equals nine? Not necessarily. It depends on your skin color, and the answer could be different uh, based on ethno-mathematics. And, and so, um, in, in my opinion, is that uh, failing to do your homework is racist. Not studying for a test is racist. Uh, I think that if students are not doing uh, well in school, it's not because uh, there's something wrong with math. It's probably because there is something wrong with their study habits. And I can't imagine if, if you want to destroy the African-American population in, in the United States, and of course, that's what this is all about. If you want to destroy the African-American population, if you want to reduce their academic achievement to zero, uh, if you want to damage that demographic, as much as you possibly can. I cannot imagine a more effective tool than to tell young black kids that mathematics is racist, that there's no such thing as a right answer, that anything you put down in response to a math problem is okay as long as your skin color is 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 dark. Um, I assume that Asians are going to continue getting the right answer, right? Um, I, but I just, the idea that we would tell our young people, it's okay, it doesn't matter if you don't get the right answer to the math problem or the physics problem, uh, that's just a racist construct, and, you know, whatever you write down in your paper, you're going to get the same grade as the, as the student who got it right. I cannot imagine anything that would be more destructive to the future of, of America's young people. And that is nevertheless exactly what teachers unions and departments of education across this country are trying to bring about. This is the Dan Proft Show.